This ethics podcast is dedicated in honor of the bat mitzvah of Ariella from Los Angeles, California. May she grow up to be a righteous person who brings honor to her family and community and to the entire Jewish people. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. We are up to chapter 5, Mishnah number 15. And today, I know we haven't done Perkyavos in a while. We have not done an ethics podcast in a while. So today, I would like to do actually four Mishnayos. This chapter is all about, you know, the lists of ten. We had lists of seven. Now we're up to lists of four. And today, I want to do four lists of four, namely Mishnah number 15, Mishnah number 16, 17, and 18. So it's a lot to uh, cover, and let's see what we can cover today. So let's start with Mishnah number 15. Arba Midos Betalmidim. There are four types of students. Number one, Mahir Lushmo Mahir Labed, one who is quick to learn, to understand, to comprehend, and quick to forget. Such a person, so he understands fast, and then he loses it fast. Yatsa Scharabef Seido. Exceeded is his gain by his loss. Of course, it's easy to learn. Easy come, easy go. You learn it easily, but you forget it easily as well. And therefore, it's you're worse off. You're worse off than you would have been otherwise because you don't retain. So that's the first student. Someone who understands with difficulty, very hard to understand, a little bit dense, a little bit slow to comprehend. But once you understand it, once you put in the effort and you understand it, it lasts for a long time. Such a person, exceeded is his loss by his gain. The gain outweighs the loss. Okay, number three. Someone who is just blessed with tremendous mental faculties, understands quickly and forgets only very difficultly, meaning that retains it for a long time. This person was given a good portion. And finally, the fourth kind of student is someone who understands only after great difficulty, after great effort. But even then, forgets it very easily. So these are the four kinds of students. Now, the commentaries all explain that this Mishnah, unlike the previous ones, this is not dealing with righteousness and wickedness. This is talking about the natural gifts that a person has endowed to them by their creator. Everyone is endowed with different capacities and different mental capabilities. We can choose our genes. These are the innate abilities we're given them naturally. It's a gift from the Almighty, and everyone's given a certain amount of intelligence. And of course, there's different kinds of intelligence, but the kinds of intelligence that are about is comprehension and retention. Those kinds of intelligence, it's not in our hands. And therefore, unlike the other Mishnayas that we've been talking about, unlike the other teachings we've been talking about, this particular one has nothing to do with righteousness or wickedness. This is not about being a pious person, being a good person. This is just the gifts that you have. It's given to you by the Almighty. It's not a measure of how good of a person you are. Now, it's interesting that we're talking about four kinds of students, this Mishnah, you would imagine, could have been talking about four kinds of more advanced adult scholars. This breakdown of the different kinds of intellectual abilities people have, well, that applies universally. There are students, of course, that fall into these four char- character types. 
And there are more veteran scholars that are also, you have some of them that are faster to comprehend, some of them that forget easily and some retain very well. It's interesting that our Mishnah frames the distribution of natural abilities specifically with respect to students, to Talmidim. Now, if you look a little bit later on in Mishnah number 17, it talks about those who go to study. It's not students, it's those who go to study. And Mishnah number 18, it talks about students who sit before the sages, meaning that they're more advanced students. And here, when it's talking about the natural abilities, the four kinds of minds that people are even relative to understanding and retaining, it seems to be talking about less established students. It's just the Talmidim. So why is our Mishnah referring specifically to younger students? So I want to suggest maybe an approach to understand this Mishnah. We're talking about natural gifts. We're talking about intelligence. We're talking about mental firepower. That's what we're talking about in this Mishnah. And everyone's given a certain amount. And it's basically genetic. It's what your genes say. You have no choice and no ability to influence it. But that is only if you are a young student. We are told that there are some things that you can do to augment your intellect to expand your capacities, to sharpen your mind. The Torah is the one tool that allows us to upgrade our operating system, to upgrade our mental faculties. You know, we just had this past week, we had Simchas Torah, with the celebration of the completion of the Torah. And in our shul, as is done by many shuls worldwide, we have a celebration take all the Torah strolls out of the ark and we dance with them for hours and hours and hours. And we make seven circuits around the bima. You know, we started davening, we started praying at around nine-ish. We didn't get home till four in the afternoon. Basically, as long as Yom Kippur. But it's very different. There's a lot of exuberance and there's a lot of dancing and kids being thrown up into the air and everyone being given satchels of candy. But the first song that we sang on Simchas Torah is from a verse in Scripture, a verse in chapter 19 of Psalms, and this is a verse lauding the Torah. And we say, Torah is Hashem Temima. The Torah of God is perfect. Meshivas Nafesh, it makes us calm, it makes us easygoing. And the next verse, or the next part of the verse, and the next part of the song, is Edus Hashem the testimony of God is ne'emano, is trustworthy. And then we say, machimas pesi, which means it makes the fool wise. We have here a verse in scripture that's telling us that via Torah study, we could take a fool and make them wise. We can upgrade the intelligence. And you know, they've seen this song so many times, so frequently, I was thinking one year to get, you know, like to have when you go into Costco, to have someone who's counting all the people. So everyone who comes in, they count it to see how many people, how many customers are coming in every day. I wanted to get one of those counters to 
count how many times they repeated Taras Hashem to Taras Hashem to Mima. Again, 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 again. They did it for 40 minutes. Uh, it must have been hundreds of times we said the same verse in scripture, saying it over and over and over again. And every time we're saying, this is what makes the fools wise. This is what makes the fools wise. The only time we could be talking about mental capacities. It's distributed. Some are smarter. Some are, some are denser. They're, they're dumber. I don't know how to say it politely. What's the politically correct way to say it? They are slower to comprehend. They are more mentally challenged. That's the way the Almighty made the world. Everyone's different. Everyone's given a certain amount of intellectual capacity. That's, that's what you have. It's fixed. It's fixed. So long as you're a new student. Once you come to Torah, you have the capacity to expand, augment, increase your intellect. In fact, the Sefer HaChinuch, the book that we are using in our mitzvah discussion to guide us through the mitzvos, in his introduction, he asked the question, why do we have Torah? What is the purpose of Torah? And he explains that a human is a fusion of opposites. On one hand, we're very instinctual, almost like an animal. On the other hand, we have the capacity of intellect, like an angel. And we have these two forces vying for control. What it's, what's going to be? What's going to be our destiny? Are we going to be instinctual beasts or are we going to be intellectual creatures? And he explains that left to our own devices, if we do nothing, by default, we'll become more and more and more instinctual, more and more like animals. That is the natural state of progression or regression of mankind. However, the Almighty doesn't want that. The Almighty wants us to upgrade ourselves and become like angels. And therefore, He gave us a tool to sharpen and hone our intellect and thereby augment our intellect and give us a fighting chance to retain our angelic, our intellectual halves. And that's the Torah. That's the primary reason, according to Sefer Chinuch, as to why we have Torah. It's to actually supercharge our mind, our intellect, and make that a more dominant force in our lives. So we're seeing over here how, yes, there is a natural distribution of abilities, but it can change and it can be expanded. Our intellect and our capacity can be expanded via Torah study. And therefore, if we're going to talk about the four kinds of students, it's only by younger students, not by more veteran and advanced students. The Talmud tells us in the book of Bava Basra, page 175b, so at the very end of the book of Bava Basra, Harod says, Sheyachim, someone who wants to become wise, Ya'asok, but Dini should specifically study the parts of Torah that deal with financial matters. Why? Because those parts of the Torah are designed almost or necessitate that you have to really study the more finer, subtle, and nuanced arguments, and that trains your mind to be sharper and more potent. You know, people always wonder, you go to yeshiva, and you go to study Torah, and the things that you study are almost never relevant to your actual lives. You know, we spent a year studying the book of Yuvamos, which deals with Leverite marriages, which is something that 
I've never seen, and I don't know anyone who has seen it before. So why are you studying it? You go study Baba Kama, and it starts off and says, well, what do you do if my ox gores your ox, and then you find the baby ox, and the baby ox is dead? I don't know anyone who owns an ox. I know we're in Texas, so there's lots of ranches here. I'm sure there's a lot of people that I know that that do own cattle. But in our modern urban living, it doesn't exist. So what's the benefit? Here we have an answer. This supercharges your mind. This expands your mental capacities. This boosts your IQ. You can become sharper, more intelligent via Torah. Now, the specific part of Torah being discussed over here or about mental ability being discussed here is comprehension and retention, remembering. It's very important. Whenever we talk about remembering, the Talmud tells us that the human mind is designed to forget. That's where the Almighty made it. You don't retain all the information that you access. You don't remember things. You don't remember all the cars, for example, that you saw while driving. You don't remember all the people that you saw while shopping. You don't remember all the things that you read. You don't remember everything that people tell you. Your mind filters out the things, the things that are more important, things that make a bitter impact, the things that really jar you. Those things stick for a long time. The traumas for sure stick for a long time. But everything else, we have a filtering effect. The things that are more important, those bubble to the top, those are retained. And the things that are less important, we move on from. That's, by the way, why we're able to move on from, you know, when, when you're, someone's embarrassed, they feel like they can't, they can't be around people because they're so embarrassed. And then the next day, they, they kind of forget about it. Six months later, they're way past it. It doesn't even capture a share of their mind. It's, it's, it's a beautiful way to move on, to move past things. We forget things, we move on. You're studying Torah. You sound the Almighty's wisdom. You're going to forget it? The answer is, yeah, of course you will forget it. And therefore the Talmud tells us in many different places that you must review. Reviewing Torah is paramount. The Talmud tells us that if someone studies Torah, that is akin to them planting spiritual seeds. And when you plant seeds, you hope that they they get cultivated and they eventually surface and you have a yield. You have produce. You have a bounty. You have crops. But what's going to be? Someone's going to plant the seeds and do all the initial work. And then they're going to ignore the harvesting season and allow all their crops to be eaten by the wild animals. That is studying without reviewing. And if you think about it, we were, we think that, you know, reviewing is like an, an extra, something that comes afterwards. It's not the essential part of learning. You learn and then maybe you review, which is a nice thing. Here we're told it's the opposite. Learning is just planting the seeds. Reviewing, that is when you harvest it. That's when you, you, you take it home, so to speak. The Talmud also has a very scary, Follow-up state, statement, and this is in the book of Sanhedrin, page 99a, at the very bottom. It says, if someone studies Torah and forgets it, it's akin to a woman who gives birth 
and tragically has to bury their child. Meaning, if we're exposing ourselves to the Maya's Torah, it's important that we don't lose that. Just like you have a child, a beautiful thing, you don't want to, God forbid, lose that. And it's, the commentaries explain here, that it's a little embarrassing to the Torah and its giver when people don't cherish it. If you buy a Rolex and you want to wear it proudly, you don't just leave it around. You put it in a safe. You make sure that it's, you always know where it is. You have Torah. It's more valuable than a Rolex. Could you believe that? It's more valuable. You want to retain it and the way you treat it after you already have it, you've accessed it now. How do you treat it now? That shows, that demonstrates, that exhibits the kind of relationship that you have with it. Now, the commentaries tell us that when we study Torah, we must review many times. For example, I was always told in yeshiva, you study Talmud, the first time is not even studying. Second time, also not. You have to study a minimum of four times, i.e. study once, review three times. Only then is it considered studying. I remember in yeshiva I was told, if we look at a standard page of Talmud, you have the Rashi commentary on the inner margins. You have the Tosfos commentary on the outer margins. And in the middle, you have the actual body of the text of the Mishnah and of the Talmud. And if you look at a standard page of Talmud, on the top, where you have the Rashi and the Tosfos commentary, there's always four lines of commentary before you have the main body of the text of the Talmud. And that is supposed to be symbolic, I was told that you must study a minimum of four times before you move on, or else you have no chance to remember it. So four times, that's the minimum. But if you want to really remember your study, you got to do way more than four times. The Talmud tells us in many places, for example, in the book of Sachem, page 72a, it was common for the sages, whenever they heard a teaching, to repeat it to themselves 40 times. 40 times. You repeat it 40 times, you'll remember it. And then we get to the Talmud in the book of Chadiga, page 9b. And the Talmud there says, it is incomparable when someone studies and reviews a hundred times, that's totally incomparable to someone who studies and reviews a hundred and one times. A hundred times is great, but it's nothing like reviewing a hundred and one times. And this is a very spe- specific number. And the Kabbalists explain that the angel who oversees Torah, his name is Michael, and the gematria of the name Michael is a hundred and one, and that's when he's studying a hundred and one times. You are actualizing the power of this angel and you're going to be sure that you're never going to forget. There's like a guarantee. You re- you review something 101 times, you will never forget it. In fact, there's many indications and uh, signs and symbols to the power of the review of 101 times. So, for example, we just read in the end of the Torah... Torah tziva lanu Moshe. Torah was commanded to us by Moshe. The word tziva is a tzaddik, and then a vav, and then a hey. Tzaddik is 90, vav is 6, hey is 5. 90 plus 6 plus 5 is 101. When Moshe taught us the Torah originally, he also taught it to us 101 times. 
Now listen to this. This is from the Kliyakar, one of the great commentaries on the Torah. He says the Hebrew word for remember, zachar, well, the gematria, the numerical value of that word, the zayin, zachar, zayin is seven, the chaf is 20, the resh is 200, so that's 227. And the word for forget in Hebrew is shachach. Shin is 300. The chaf is again 20. And the ches is 8, 328. What is the difference between remembering and forgetting? 227 and 328, it's 101. If you want to be sure, you want to be guaranteed, you won't forget something forever, study it, review it 101 times. The great leader of world Jewry, the Goan of Vilna, his primary student, came to him at the age of 19 and says, I studied an entire order of Talmud 19 times, but I don't remember it. He says, 19 times? You just didn't start it. You just didn't warmed up. Even 101 times, that's not the end. You got to do it even more. You got a whole life continuous studying because you're fighting against the headwinds of forgetfulness. So what do we see here? We have a Mishnah here that's telling us there's a distribution of intelligence. Some people comprehend really fast. For some people, it takes a long time. Everyone is bound to forget some faster than others. And we're told here that there are ways around this. There are ways to circumvent the natural order of forgetfulness. Namely, you can empower your mind with Torah study in general, and specifically with respect to avoiding forgetfulness, we have the tried and true ways, review it 101 times, and you will not forget it. Now, this Mishnah is a little bit of a mystery. Everyone has to study Torah. Everyone. If you're bright, if you're less so, Everyone has to study Torah. There's no carve out and says, well, you know what? You you don't quite have the ability to do it. And therefore, it's for someone else. Everyone has to study Torah, whether you're gifted or not. So what is the practical takeaway? What difference does it make whether or not someone is gifted or less gifted or brighter, comprehend faster, slower, forgetfulness, retain the information for longer. What difference does it make to know that there's four kinds of students? There's the really gifted one, the prodigy, understands it really fast, retains it for a very long time. And then you have the one who unfortunately got the poor end of the stick, really difficult to comprehend and forgets really easily. And then you have the average ones, one guy remembers or remembers really well, but it takes a long time to acquire that. One forgets really fast, but at least the comprehension is fast. What difference does it make? Who cares? Who cares? Everyone has to learn, stu- learn and study Torah regardless. What is the practical difference of this Mishnah? So the commentaries tell us, this is found in many of the commentaries, it tells us like this, which I find really interesting. Suppose you have limited resources. You have scarce resources. And there's 
two kids. And you only have enough resources for one of them. What do you do? Which one of them takes priority? Which one do you send to yeshiva? The answer is you send the one who is more gifted. You take the one who has more gifts, who has a greater potential for greatness, and that's the one that gets prioritized over the one with weaker gifts. I think this is important because, of course, we as a nation, we believe in education more than any other people. That's the one obsession that has remained constant throughout Jewish history. The idea of universal literacy and universal education was always true by us. But even so, we believe in prioritizing the gifted. We believe in having gifted programs, even though it's going to exclude other people, because we believe that when the Almighty gives someone more ability, it demands a greater achievement. Not everyone's the same. We don't believe that everyone is identical. Everyone's individual. Everyone's personalized. And when the Almighty endows someone with a tremendous amount of gifts, that demands that their output be commensurate to their gifts. The great Rabbi Israel Salanter, the giant of the Muslim movement and of the 19th century, he once made the following statement. I have the mind of a thousand men. It sounds like it's a very arrogant thing to say. It's what we would say. But no, the Almighty gave him a gift. A gift of incredible raw brain power. I have the mind of a thousand men, and therefore I have the responsibility of a thousand men. This person is not created equal. They're not created equal. No, one person was given a thousand times the responsibility of the other person. And this is a critical idea. We shouldn't be measuring ourselves against other people. We have to measure ourselves against ourselves. What are you capable of? Don't measure yourself against the mediocrity of everyone else. And therefore, if there's someone that has those gifts, it's imperative. If we only have scarce resources, we should invest more in the person capable of doing the output of a thousand men over the person who's just an average Joe. We do believe in having a gifted program. This today, I think, is becoming a little bit more controversial here because, you know, equality is is triumphing overall. There are some cities, for example, in the United States that have shelved their gifted programs. I think it's a big mistake because, again, the Almighty creates people differently and has different expectations of different people. And when someone is gifted, it's a gift from the Almighty, as the term suggests. And it demands more and us as educators and leaders and pedagogues and parents and people who have a say, we have to direct more attention towards those kids. So the bottom line of this Mishnah is that we have no ability to decide or determine the kind of tools that we were given, the amount of intellect and capacity. That is divinely determined. We can't make exchanges. We can't swap it in. You know what? Let me upgrade my RAM. You can't do that. But we can do a lot with it. If you are a new student, you're just getting started, 
there's going to be a wide distribution. Nevertheless, you must do the most with what you have. So that's the first Mishnah. I want to do try to cover really all four today of the uh, the next four Mishnayas. So let us continue with Mishnah number 16. Arbamidas Benosei Tzedakah. There are four character types of those who donate to charity. If someone wants to give themselves but doesn't want others to give, he is begrudging of others. Others should give, but he should not give. He's begrudging himself. If he wants to give and wants us to give as well, that's a chassid, that's a pious person. So we have the distribution of intellect, and now we have the distribution of those who give charity. Now there's a big discussion in the commentaries as to what exactly this means. I saw a nice piece by the chassid Yaivitz, one of the commentaries that we use to study Perkyavos, and I found it really interesting. This is not talking about people who give charity versus people who don't give charity. This is talking about everyone who gives charity falls into one of these four categories. If someone gives, wants to give, but doesn't want others to give, that person is begrudging the recipient of the charity. He says, oh, there's a poor person here who needs. Oh, there's a cause that needs to be addressed. I gave already. You don't need to give. The cause has been met. The poor person has been covered. You don't need to give. If a person says that other people should give, but I'm not going to give. Oh, other people already gave. I don't need to give. And think of someone who doesn't judge the cause or the poor person so critically. He says, oh, others give, I'm going to give nonetheless. Oh, I give, you should give nonetheless. Don't be, this is the chassid, this is the pious person, don't be so on top of the uh, of the affairs of the person you're giving or the cause you're giving to and say, oh, they have enough? No, give as much as um, as you're able to give and be generous and let the people who need let them do. Let them figure out what to do with the surplus. And finally, you have the Russia, the wicked one, someone who does give charity, but you have to prove to them that you are destitute, that you are on the verge of starvation, on the verge of collapse, and only then are they willing to give you, and that is the worst kind of charity given. So charity given of all types is praiseworthy, but here we're told that there's different ways that the giver can view the recipient. You could say, well, what do they actually need? Let me give them that and not, a, and not a cent more. Oh, someone else gave? I'm off the hook. Oh, I gave? You're off the hook. That's not so great. Person's giving. Person wants others to give. But a person's still overseen, so to speak, a little bit too critically, the needs of others. When someone is, you know, has a certain largesse, I'll give, you give, let everyone give. Let the person or, or the recipient or the cause, let them be awash in donations that is the right way to go. And the worst is when someone is very, very on top and say, you have to prove to me completely that you are lacking and only then are you are you going to get anything from me or from anyone else. The Talmud actually says, this is something people find very controversial. The Torah says that we are obligated to give charity to the poor people. 
It's not something which is above and beyond. Oh, it's generosity. It's a mitzvah in the Torah. It's one of six or 13 mitzvahs to give charity. In fact, Talmud says it's a mitzvah that it's equal to all 613 mitzvahs combined. It's a very central mitzvah. Now, how much am I supposed to give? So, the Torah says, De machsoro asher yechsar lo, which means whatever the person needs. And this is individual, we are told. And the Talmud gives an example. There was a rich person. And the rich person used to have a chariot. A chariot with runners, with uh, 16 horses. They were a rich person. They traveled in style in a limousine of old. And now, unfortunately, they lost their money and they're poor. Says the Talmud, it is proper for me to pay for his limousine because that's what they used to. That's what they need. They become accustomed to a life of luxury and paying for their luxury is my charity. I don't have a limousine. Doesn't matter. My mitzvah is to pay for what they need, what they have grown accustomed to, what they are acculturated to. And even though it sounds strange to us, because we think of charity as like, okay, make sure they have enough food to eat, make sure that the operations can can go. But no, I have to find whatever they're lacking, and that could be very individualistic. That's very subjective. So they could have very expensive tastes, and I could legitimately say, hey, don't, you know, don't bring your expensive tastes to my charity. But no, Torah says, even their expensive tastes, that can be very legitimate charity. Now, I saw a nice piece on this particular Mishnah. It's not really relevant to, to this Mishnah in general, even though this Mishnah is talking about the various challenges people have with different charity and the various different calculations that people tend to make. So it is germane. But there's a concept that's called an evil inclination exchange. Now, what does that mean? So we all have, of course, an evil inclination. We call it a Yetzirah. We all have a Yetzirah. And the Yetzirah is determined, dead set, hell-bent on getting us to not do any mitzvahs. That's its job. In fact, it's actually an angel. It's an angel appointed by God to make life and spiritual advancement very difficult for us. <clears throat> well, okay, how are we supposed to navigate that? How are we supposed to avoid that? How are we supposed to circumvent the fact that we have a very powerful angel that's trying to stunt our spiritual growth? So one of the ways that we can do that, one of the tools in our arsenal is the evil Inclination exchange. What that means is that you exchange a minor concession for a major triumph. It's almost like a, like a strategic retreat where you're kind of giving a little bit to the enemy, but you're taking a lot more in return. Very clever tactics being described here. So let's say someone is very stingy. They're very stimpy on giving. Giving is very difficult for them. That's the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah doesn't want them to be charitable. Wants them to be, you know, uh, less generous. Wants to be a m- bit more miserly. 
And the Yetzirah says to them, convinces them, well, if, if you give, you, you worked so hard for this money. It was so difficult for you to earn it. And now you're going to give it to this person or this cause. And you'll have less money. What's going to be if you have an expense? You're about to pay for it. That's what the Yetzirah tells you. Now, the Yetzirah works on lots of different fronts simultaneously. The Yetzirah also tells you, well, don't you realize that everyone's disrespecting you? They don't realize how important you are. You're a holy person. You're a righteous person. You're a good person. You're an honorable person. But look how they treat you. They don't stand up for you. They don't honor you. They don't appreciate you. They don't, they fail to recognize how a special person you are. You need more honor. And then that, of course, the eights are not talking. Ideally, we should be more humble. Who needs honor? Well, as long as we're honorable in the eyes of God, we're good. And we have the Yetzirah operating on many different fronts. He tells you to be lazy. He tells you to be hubristic. He tells you to not do any mitzvos. He tells you how special you already are. Here, don't you know how hard you're already working? A clever way to fight the Yetzirah is to force the Yetzirah to concede to your position because you say, hey, that's what you want. So this is the context of what we're talking about over here. Someone's a very difficult time giving charity. They can say to the HRF, I give charity, I'm going to get honor. Everyone's going to think I'm generous. Everyone's going to think I'm righteous. And don't you want that? You want everyone to look up to me, right? That's what you want. So what you do is, you say, I will give the charity in exchange for the honor. It's the evil inclination exchange. And you are getting something bigger because the bigger challenge that you had was the lack of generosity. And you've yielded a little bit by saying, oh, we'll get some honor in return. And that's a good kind of exchange. As long as you're exchanging a bigger challenge that you're getting, that you're winning. For a smaller challenge, that is a very useful, very clever tactic that we can use to navigate the very difficult labyrinthine challenges and maze, so to speak, of trying to get through life and advance through life via our intellect and our planning and against the schemes and the machinations of the cunning and wily Yetzir Hara. Now, of course, Rabbi Yonah, and many of the commentaries do, whenever we talk about charity, he reminds us that it makes us rich. And when you skimp on charity, you don't make, you don't actually end up better off. It's kind of counterintuitive. Charity is not a liability. But of course, this is something that everyone here already knows. Okay, let's continue with the next mission, no? This is mission number 17. Someone who goes but does not study the reward for going is his. That's the first kind of person who goes to the study hall. One who does but does not go, then then the reward for doing is in their hands. Someone who goes and does is a chassid, lo holech, velo osa is a rush. Someone does not go, and someone does not do, is a rush. So again, we have this distribution, this uh, four by four grid, uh, I'm sorry, two by two grid of the four kinds of people. And here it's talking specifically about going to the base measures, going to the study hall. Now, it's a discussion in the commentaries as to what exactly is this referring to. 
Rabbein Yonah says something very interesting. If you read this Mishnah simply, it seems to imply when someone goes to study but doesn't do, that means that they don't actualize, they don't put into action what they studied. Someone like that, says Rabbein Yonah, that's not even part of the discussion here. If someone goes and studies laws and they go to the base murders, they go to the study hall and they study the laws, and they find out what the Torah wants, and then they deliberately violate it, says Rabbein Yonah, quoting from the Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, someone like that, it's better that they never exist. Someone like that is so corrupt, we're not even talking about that kind of person. What it means is like this. You go to, you go to study and you discover something, you learn something. Now you have been activated and now you must be on the prowl, on the lookout for an opportunity to actualize what you learn. Therefore, if someone goes and they study, but they don't pursue that opportunity. They don't say, well, how do I make this relevant to me? How do, where can I find in my life that I can improve upon what I learned? Someone like that, you know what? They studied and they have some benefit, but not full benefit. When someone does without studying, meaning they're following their intuition, they're studying a little bit, they're picking up little bits here and there, they're not going to formally study of how to become a better person. They do it without studying. There's going to be all kinds of gaps in their knowledge. There's going to be holes and flaws in their knowledge because they haven't studied. But nevertheless, the fact that they're doing good things, that will accrue to their benefit. Ideally, someone should be someone who goes to study, who says, okay, what does the Almighty want of me? What are my responsibilities? What must I accomplish? What are the good things that I should adopt and adhere to? What are the bad things that I should avoid? How do I live a good moral life? How do I make sure that when I return my soul to my creator, I can say with pride, I did what you asked me to do. I have perfected myself and the world around me. I've been an asset to your cause, not a liability. That's the objective of the righteous. Not only that, once you know you've added to your knowledge base, now you say, okay, where can I improve? You're constantly monitoring yourself and saying, where can I improve? I know that. Okay, well, where can I plug in this bit of knowledge? Where can I plug in that bit of knowledge? How can I implement what I've studied? And finally, the worst of this is someone who does not interested in that, doesn't care about that at all. And even what they know, they do not do. And someone like that, of course, is the wicked person. And finally, we have the final Mishnah of the quartet. The quartet, the four of four. This is mission number 18. Arba midos biyoshvim lifnei There are four kinds of people who sit in front of the sages. This is talking about more advanced students who are already in the process of becoming teachers themselves. There is a sfog, a sponge, umashpech, and a funnel, mishameres, a strainer, venafa, and a sieve. These are all things that things come in things come out. But the way they actually 
absorb, assimilate, and then disgorge the information is very different. Sfog, the first one, the sponge, shehu sofed esakol, they absorb everything. A mashpech, a funnel, shemachnis bezu mot bezu. Mashpech, a funnel is very simple. It's got a hole on one side, a hole on the other side. Nothing really stands, nothing really remains inside. In one ear, out the other, and nothing is retained. Mishamer is a strainer, shemotzia es hayayin, it lets through the wine, vekoletes es hashmarim, and it retains the sediments. And finally, a sieve, shemotzia es hakemach, it lets the flour go out, vekoletes es hasolas, and it retains the solas, which is the good kind of flour. Now, the commentaries all disagree as to exactly how we break down this Mishnah, what's the best, what's the worst. Everyone seems to agree that the funnel, for example, is someone who retains nothing. In one ear, out the other, they're absorbing the Torah from their master, but what they teach, it just it just kind of flo- falls right through it. It doesn't get the opportunity to be developed internally to be absorbed internally. Maybe they could pop it over what they heard, but they really haven't acquired the knowledge and they're not really a good candidate to teach it. But exactly which one of them is the best and which is the worst, it's a dispute. I want to go with the Ruach Chaim, with the commentary of the Ruach Chaim. I found it really interesting. He says that a sponge, a sponge, of course, that absorbs everything. All liquids can be absorbed into one sponge. And then you take that sponge and you give it a little squeeze. So if there's some, there's some wine and water and vinegar and Coca-Cola and coffee and it's all trapped in the sponge, you squeeze out, it'll be a, a kind of a nasty putrid mix of all those aforementioned liquids. And this is referring to a kind of student that it hears a lot, absorbs it all, but then it gets all mixed up in their head and they don't know what's good and what's bad and what's appropriate and what should be taught and what should not be taught and what must be discarded. They don't have a filtering me- uh, mechanism. Everything comes in. It's one big melting pot, so to speak, in their mind. And then it comes out as just one big jumbled mess. Something like that is a very poor candidate to be a good teacher. A good teacher has to know, okay, of all the inputs, what is really important that I must distill and convey over, what is maybe a very bad idea, something which is maybe even heretical, something which is which is poorly thought out, that must be discarded. You have to be able to separate all those inputs to be able to teach it over properly. And then we have the funnel. Funnels in one ear, out the other. This is someone who maybe could say over verbatim what was taught, but it really, it never landed within them. You know, funnel just goes in and right away out. Such a person, they forget right away and it never really sits within them. Also a terrible candidate to teach. Now, this person, of course, is not going to be mixing the different liquids it just comes in one right at the other. There is no process of, of assimilation of all these different ideas. So on a, to a certain extent, this person is better than the first, than the sponge. 
to a certain extent, the person is worse, not retaining anything. But regardless, both of those are not good candidates to be able to teach properly. Of those sitting in front of the sages, neither of those is a great candidate. And then you have the strainer. This is when someone takes everything in, is able to separate the bad, and allow that to not be conveyed forward, and just the pure wine goes through. This is the best kind of teacher. The best kind of teacher is someone with all the inputs is able to separate out the sediments, separate out the contaminants, separate out the ideas that maybe either they're too advanced or they're too shallow or they're too inappropriate or they're wrong. Is able to filter, say, well, this, yes, this, no. That filtering process where they're able to spit out just the pure and delicious and healthy and wonderful wine, so to speak, someone like that, that is the best candidate. And by the way, it's uniform with the rest of the Mishnahs. The third one is always the best. First two are kind of average, and the third one's the best, and the fourth one is the worst. That's what, that's what the Ruach Haim here says, that this follows the same model. And he explains... When you study, when you study, so you're approaching the Torah and trying to understand it, and you start off and you have maybe a hypothesis, right? You, you, you theorize maybe this is the way to understand a given piece of Torah, a given piece of, of halacha, of Talmud, of whatever it is. And they say, well, no, you modify it, then you have a different idea, maybe you put those ideas together. You're always filtering through ideas until you find the one that clicks. And that's the one that you want to convey. And that's that filtering process that's being described to you. You're trying to find all the sediment, remove that. That, that, that's, that doesn't go forward. It's only the good stuff that emerge. And finally, we have the worst of them all. The worst is the sieve. The sieve made sure that all the good stuff are removed and all the bad stuff are taught. If someone could be so corrupted and have such a twisted mind, and such a, just a, a, a terrible teacher that it's only the bad stuff that they teach. And all the good stuff they omit. There is a possibility, we're told here. The righteous ideas, the proper ideas, the true ideas, the logical ideas are never taught. It's just all the nonsense. That is what goes forth. And of course, we're very careful. Many of these people are all talented. But the talents that you have in one area don't necessarily translate to the other area. And the role of a teacher is to learn how to filter, evaluate and filter what's good, what's legitimate, what's right. That should be conveyed forth. And the nonsense and the wrong ideas must be removed, preserve the good, discard the bad. So that is the fourth of the four teaching. Very interesting. A lot to process. And I was thinking, you know, if this is too much to remember in one sitting, all you need to do is to listen to the podcast 101 times. And if you listen to it 101 times, I assure you that you will remember it all forever. Try it. And let me know how it goes. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.